Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Dr. Kara ong Associate Director at the Madison Center, and joining me this morning is Dr. Abe Goldberg. Hi, Abe. How are you, Kara? I'm doing well. How about you? Doing well. Very excited about today's topic. Yes, I am too. Joining us on the episode is Deb Otis. She is a senior research analyst in the law and policy department at Fair Vote, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that works on electoral reform and specifically on ranked choice voting. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Deb. Hi, Kara. Hi, Abe. Thank you for having me. So, Deb, I wonder if you can start by explaining for our audience how ranked choice voting works. And how does it differ from traditional voting methods? For example, uh, selecting only one candidate, one of the candidates or choices on a list. Absolutely. Ranked choice voting means that voters have the option to rank candidates on the ballot instead of choosing just one. You mark which candidate is your first choice, which is your second choice, and so on. Of course, if a voter wants to rank only one candidate, they may do so, and they may vote just the way that they always have. It's a simple change for voters, but it has powerful impacts on our elections. A big one is that it frees voters from the burden of strategic voting. How many of us have wondered, should I vote for the candidate I like best, or should I vote for the candidate who has the best chance of defeating the person I like least? Ranked choice voting lets voters express their true preference as their first choice, and voters know that if their top choice does not get enough support, if their first choice is eliminated, their vote goes to count for their next choice. So their vote stays in play and their voice is always heard. It's nice to know for voters that if you can't have your first choice, at least you can lend support to your second choice instead of your last choice. Another powerful change with ranked choice voting is that it changes incentives for campaigns. Candidates conduct their campaigns with more civility because they know they may need some second choices and some third choices in order to win. It doesn't help if a candidate alienates supporters of their opponents. So I think it's a big improvement for voters when we can see more positive and issues-focused campaigns. And lastly, when ranked choice voting is used for multi-winner races, it elects like electing multiple people to a city council, it leads to proportional outcomes, giving representation to even more voters. So it's a simple change for voters, but it has all of these very important impacts. Can you speak to us about the history of ranked choice voting? Um, How did it come about? How has it evolved? And also, I'm, I'm wondering why it seems that ranked choice voting is having a moment right now. Just for an example, in the past few weeks at the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement, we've been increasingly hearing from faculty and students that want to learn about and think about how ranked choice voting could change democracy in our own communities here in the Shenandoah Valley. That's fantastic. I'm thrilled to hear that uh, interest is increasing on your campus community. Uh, So I'll start by answering your question about the history of ranked choice voting. Uh, It was created in the mid-1800s, started out as the multi-winner form, which, as I mentioned, leads to proportional outcomes. Uh, And then shortly after that, the single-winner form was developed. And the single-winner form, electing one person like a mayor or a governor. That's what's used most often in the United States. Uh, Ranked choice voting is used around the world in countries like Ireland and Australia. In fact, Australia recently celebrated their 100-year anniversary using this voting method. Uh, In in the U.S., we have about 20 jurisdictions using ranked choice voting at the local level, including cities in California, Utah, Minnesota, Colorado, just to name a few. 
and even one state, the state of Maine, which used it statewide for the first time in 2018, just two years ago. And since then, they've even expanded the ranked choice voting law to apply to even more offices. Uh, and so in the U.S., most implementations are the single winner form, like to elect the mayor or the governor. A few places are also using the multi-winner form, like when they need to elect multiple members of a city council all at once. Uh, and also, Abe, you asked, why is ranked choice voting having a moment right now? And you're absolutely right. In addition to the chatter you've seen on your own campus, uh, we've seen a lot of new jurisdictions adopt ranked choice voting over just the last couple of years. Uh, I think one of the reasons these days is that voters want to feel like their vote matters, and it doesn't always feel that way. Sometimes voters may feel like the outcome of the race is already a foregone conclusion, so they individually can't have an impact. Or maybe a voter simply doesn't like the candidates from the two major parties, but they feel like they have to choose between the lesser of two evils, and maybe that makes them uninterested in voting. Ranked choice voting puts the power of choice into the hands of the voters, ensuring that a majority of voices are going to be heard. And I think that speaks to a lot of people. Uh, one of the big wins this year was that uh, ranked choice voting was used in some presidential primaries for the first time in four states. Uh, this was partly in response to the Democratic field of primary candidates being so large. I think that's one of the reasons that ranked choice voting in presidential races picked up steam this year. Ranked choice voting gives voters more choice and voting power when the field is really large, and it prevents the idea of wasted votes. Um, the wasted votes problem actually happened to my own mother. Uh, my mom lives in a Super Tuesday state, and she went and voted early. And then her candidate dropped out of the race before Election Day. But my mom had already cast her ballot, so she felt like her vote was wasted. If she'd been able to rank her choices, then her vote could have stayed in play. Her vote could have counted for her second choice or whichever active candidate she had ranked highest. I think that this was important for the Democratic primaries this year, and it's possible that the Republican Party could be facing a similarly large field for the next presidential cycle when they won't have an incumbent president from their party running again. I would love to see more states adopt RCV for presidential primaries, and I think now is definitely the moment for it. One of the arguments for ranked choice voting is that it makes democracy more fair and more functional. I wonder if you can talk about how and why this is so. And I wonder, you know, in addition to that, if you can talk a little bit about how ranked choice voting would improve representation for women and people of color. Um, I think a key way that ranked choice voting makes democracy more fair, more functional, is that it lets every voice be heard. In our old voting method, voters may feel like they're wasting their votes. And RCV takes every voter's full preferences into account. I think that improves the fairness of our elections. And then you asked about how it improves representation for women and people of color. Well, it has a demonstrated track record of doing so. Places in the United States which have adopted ranked choice voting are seeing improved representation both on the ballot and also in elected office. And so how does that work? I think there are two factors that really contribute to this improved representation. Uh, one of them is that ranked choice voting eliminates the vote splitting problem. Vote splitting happens in our plurality system when similar candidates appeal to the same base of voters. They can split up their base of support such that neither of them gets enough votes to win. And so right now, 
candidates who are considering running for office, they may be told that if they run, they would simply siphon support away from a similar candidate. So they are told to not run, to not seek access to the ballot. And that burden can fall particularly heavily, I think, on the shoulders of candidates who are outside of the existing political establishment, such as first-time candidates, women candidates, and candidates of color. Uh, let's look at women for just a, as an example. We have plenty of evidence that when women run for office, when they get on the ballot, they do very well. And a system like ranked choice voting opens up the ballot to allow more voices without the problem of vote splitting. Uh, I mentioned there were, I think, two factors that could contribute to this improved representation. The second factor which could contribute, I think, is the decreased negative campaigning. More civil campaigns can help non-establishment candidates share their views in a positive and productive manner. I'm curious if you could speak to what some of the drawbacks to implementing ranked choice voting would be. I, I realize that's probably not within your job position to be doing. But at the same time, you probably do get some pushback or criticisms of the process and wonder if you could speak to what some of those are. Absolutely. Uh, one of the concerns that we hear most often is that RCV may be too complicated for voters. And it genuinely is a little more complicated than the way most of us vote now. But that's a good thing. Our plurality election method is the absolute most basic way an election could possibly be held. And it's not working. It's led to unpopular outcomes where the majority has been voting for someone else. It has led to dissatisfaction with our elected officials. It is absolutely time for a change. So we're all used to ranking things in our daily lives. You know, if I visit a restaurant and I'm ready to place my order, but the kitchen has run out of my first choice, well, I don't decide all of a sudden I'm not hungry. I choose something else and I'll still enjoy my meal. I think all of us are, are used to doing these rankings in our everyday lives. And the evidence shows that when we apply that to political elections, voters are able to understand it and effectively cast their ballot. Uh, ranked choice ballots show a very low error rate, comparable to the error rate under plurality elections, so voters understand how to fill out their ballot. And also, in ranked choice jurisdictions, uh, voters report in surveys that they understand and like using ranked choice voting. So the real-world evidence just shows that this is not too complicated for voters. Voters in cities around the U.S. and around the world are already doing this, and the rest of us can too. Uh, one other criticism that, that we sometimes hear is that uh, with ranked choice voting, some ballots can end up exhausted or inactive. That would happen if, say, you only rank one candidate and that candidate gets eliminated because they were in last place. If you don't have a second choice ranking, then your ballot does not go and count for anyone else. Your ballot is set aside and it's, it's an inactive ballot. If a voter doesn't want to vote for, they don't want their vote to count for, say, any of their bottom three candidates, no matter what, then they can just stop ranking at any point. And that's the voter's right to make that choice. So I don't see that as a problem with a voter exercising their right not to select certain candidates. I wonder if you can talk about the factors that might lead to an entity, whether it's an organization or a locality or a state, um, to, uh, to, to become more likely to adopt ranked choice voting. I think the most important factor is that the residents have to speak up and demand change, whether this is happening on a college campus or in a city, statewide, or even at the national level. The state of Maine first passed ranked choice voting through a statewide ballot initiative, which took 
thousands of hours of volunteer time, and then a majority of Maine voters choosing to vote yes on that ballot question. Uh, other places pass ranked choice voting through the legislature or through a city council ordinance. And even in those cases, it takes action from regular voters to demand from their representatives to make the change. So the biggest factor is just getting people excited about this method and uh, empowering them to go and fight for it and make it happen. Uh, I think as far as the likelihood that entities adopt RCV, there are two specific examples of types of jurisdictions which I think can can gain a huge benefit from RCV. One of them is places that use runoff elections. And this includes states like Alabama, Georgia, Texas, and many more. Uh, these states are already ahead of the game because they already require that their winners have majority support, and that's great. And so the way it works in runoff states if no one gets a majority in the general election, voters go back to the polls to vote in the runoff. It could be weeks or months later. And so the runoffs can be expensive and they often see a big decrease in turnout. Ranked choice voting can be used to replace runoff elections, which is why the system is sometimes called instant runoff voting. Voters go to the polls only once. If there is no majority on round one, well, the voters already marked on their ballot who their next choice would be if it goes into further rounds. So voters don't need to show up to vote again. It saves money for the city or state, and it lets voters turn up to the polls just once, which helps with turnout. So that's one type of jurisdiction that I think has a lot to gain from ranked choice voting. Another type are uh, places that have trouble with representation for people of color. If cities consistently fail to elect diverse representation, they can end up the target of lawsuits under the Voting Rights Act. Multi-winner ranked choice voting has actually been used as a legal remedy for cities facing those lawsuits because it has the power to elect representatives in proportion to the voting, uh, the voting population. So to sum it up, I think every city, state, or town has a lot to gain from ranked choice voting, but jurisdictions with those issues I, I mentioned above are... Uh, costly runoff elections or vote dilution for people of color, they possibly even have more incentive to take a look at RCV. So it, it is a significant change procedurally from what's happening within a lot of organizations, localities, states, and you even mentioned uh, national party primaries. Can you speak to what some of the best practices would be for entities that are considering to implement ranked choice voting? Yes, I'll give two recommendations here. Uh, an important one is a robust voter education campaign. As you say, it is, it is a change for voters. Voters overwhelmingly report that they support and understand ranked choice voting once they have heard about it. So don't blindside your voters by letting them walk into a voting booth without already having been told about ranked choice voting and how it works. My second recommendation is to allow voters to rank at least five candidates on the ballot when there are that many candidates. Some jurisdictions limit voters to only three choices, and then they can sometimes have a high rate of these inactive ballots if it's a very competitive race, because voters' first three choices may have become eliminated and they did not have the choice to rank more. Every voter should have the choice to rank as many or as few candidates as they like. So my recommendation for implementation is to allow the voter to make that choice, how many candidates they want to rank, rather than determining it for them. Deb, I wonder if you can talk about, you know, as this is a new process and as more localities and, and even Maine have adopted ranked choice voting, 
What have you learned? What have the localities, what has the state of Maine learned from adopting the process uh, that could be applied as we move forward? I think one of the big success stories is the city of San Francisco. They began using ranked choice voting in 2004. So it was one of the earliest implementations uh, in the modern era in the U.S. And so they've seen strong results since then, uh, including several other Bay Area cities, neighboring cities, also adopting ranked choice voting a few years later. So these cities in the Bay Area are the source of a lot of the research on ranked choice voting in the United States because they have lots of races spanning over more than a decade and they have decent sized voting populations. So the success we've seen from these cities is this strong representation for women and people of color. We're seeing overwhelming support for keeping RCV among the voters and a demonstrated ability of these jurisdictions to adjust their practices as needed. You don't just make a ranked choice voting law and then and then leave it be. You can continue to adjust. Uh, and one example of that is um, last year, San Francisco expanded the number of rankings that they allow on a ballot. They used to allow only three and now they have expanded that number to 10. So they are, they are willing to continue to look at the data and the results and make changes as needed and adapt. Uh, one other big success is the adoption of uh, ranked choice voting in the four presidential primaries this year. Uh, states without ranked choice voting in the Democratic primaries saw a lot of wasted votes. The number was uh, 8%, meaning votes, there's wasted votes, that means votes that were cast for candidates who had already withdrawn from the race. And ranked choice voting in the states that used it reduced wasted votes to zero. For example, in the Alaska Democratic primary, Elizabeth Warren got over 7% of the vote, but by election day, she had already dropped out of the race. So those voters had their ballots count for either Biden or Sanders, because those were the two candidates who uh, got over that 15% threshold that you need to win delegates in the Democratic primary. So voters were empowered to vote for their favorite candidate without fear that that vote would be wasted. And that's a lesson that I think a lot of other states can look towards. Can I ask a follow-up question on that? I wonder with the reduction of, of the waste vote, if you can talk about if there's been any studies that look at increase in trust uh, in government um, or, or in the electoral process as a result of using ranked choice voting. In, in other words, do we know anything about how ranked choice voting might affect uh, voter efficacy? That's a great question. I have not seen any research on that topic, but I would certainly uh, like to see more research in that area. So there, there could be people listening to this right now thinking, wow, this would be great to have in our community or even in our organization. What are some challenges or barriers that people that might be thinking they would like to move this forward, what, what can they expect as far as challenges? One challenge with implementing ranked choice voting is that sometimes this sort of election reform can be very slow to move through state legislatures or city councils. 21 states had ranked choice voting legislation active in the most recent legislative session, and there are multiple bills at the federal level as well. But of all of those states, all of those many bills, only one of them passed, and this was in Virginia. They passed legislation for a local option bill, which lets cities and towns opt in easily. Uh, and so ranked choice voting advocates 
uh, should consider the fact that it takes time for these sorts of issues to gain traction among current elected officials. These folks know how to win under the current system. So it will take some work from, from voters and from concerned citizens in order to make the change. You also addressed civility and campaigning, which was really interesting to me. That's not something I had thought about prior to this conversation as it could relate to ranked choice voting. Yes, that's one of my favorite benefits. So if anyone has ever uh, gone canvassing and door knocking for a candidate, you learn, oh, if you see a sign for the opponent in the yard, just don't even knock on that door. You know, you can't win over that voter. That voter. They have a sign for your person's opponent. So skip that house. Don't engage with that voter. But under ranked choice voting, the candidates know that they might need some second choice votes and some third choice votes. So you have the campaigns engaging with a broader swath of the electorate rather than just targeting one single base. They might approach a they might approach a voter and say, I know you already support my opponent so and so, but I think you and I have common ground on these couple of issues. So consider voting for me as your second choice. So we see candidates reaching out to more of the electorate and doing less of the mudslinging because you don't want to alienate your opponent's supporters. So I think those make a very big difference for campaigns. Do you see the adoption of ranked choice voting also impacting campaign finance in any way? I haven't looked into that issue. One of the things we've been talking about is, is how money impacts ranked choice voting elections and, and whether, whether that is different than how it impacts plurality elections. That's an area of research right now. Um, but I don't know of any conclusive results on the campaign finance front at this point. Deb Otis from Fairvote, thank you so much for joining us today. We have one final question that we ask of all of our guests. What would you do to strengthen democracy? That's a great question. Uh, to strengthen democracy, I think there, there are two things I would, I would like to do. Uh, one of them is very time sensitive. Uh, these days we are all thinking about the pandemic and we have the virus on our brains. Uh, states are beginning to ease restrictions and reopen businesses, but the virus is still out there and we just don't know what things will look like in November. Uh, so FairVote has signed on with organizational partners to endorse some improvements to early voting, no excuse absentee voting and expanded access to online voter registration. And I think uh, these types of policies can help us out uh, in the current crisis and other uh, possible threats to our elections in the future. Remember, even if your state is not a virus hotspot right now, we don't know what things will look like in November. So every state should have a plan for conducting safe and fair elections during the pandemic. Uh, my second thing that I would like to do, I think that to strengthen democracy, we ought to pass the Fair Representation Act. Uh, this is a piece of federal legislation uh, introduced by Representative Don Beyer of Virginia. It changes the way we elect the House of Representatives, and I think it would have enormous impact. For an example of how it would work, I will use uh, Representative Byers' state of Virginia. Virginia's got 11 congressional districts, each electing, of course, one representative. And we know that congressional districts are susceptible to gerrymandering, which can dilute the will of the people. And these single winner elections are vulnerable to non-majority winners, meaning you can elect someone that most people voted against. The Fair Representation Act fixes that by changing Virginia's 11 single winner districts into three larger districts that each elect multiple winners. So this is multi-winner ranked choice voting. Three or four districts are combined into one and they elect three or four people. 
And so with multi-winner ranked choice voting, that leads to a proportional outcome. So we start seeing maybe some Republicans coming from states like Massachusetts. We start seeing Democrats coming from states like Louisiana. And individuals in one congressional district might be represented by members of both parties. So every voter has a representative that truly represents their views. And these larger districts electing multiple people, it gets around the gerrymandering problem because the district lines don't matter as much. So there we go. We've solved gerrymandering. Uh, we have decreased partisan polarization and we have improved representation for voters. It's a no brainer, right? Well, Deb Otis from FairVote, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. Thank you. It was great to be here and talk with you both. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by the talented and tenacious Leah Jackson, a senior in the School of Media Arts and Design at James Madison University. Our digital guru, Randy Budnickus, director of digital marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the Madison Center online at jmu.edu slash civic. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 